0: Last week we began by talking about the who, meaning who we are, in terms of looking back at our past, looking at us in the present, kind of the gifts that God has given us, the people that God's brought here, the community that surrounds us, and we also talked about a vision of the future, of who we could be in the future. And you know, every sermon series that we do here, I live in this idealistic world that if you're not here on a particular Sunday, I assume and hope that you go back and listen to the sermon that you missed. Now I know that's idealistic thinking on my part but the sermons are like all parts that f- hold together so While that's something I normally would wish for, for this sermon series, because we're trying to share with you the vision for the future of grace, um, and we really want you to understand it, I really want to encourage you, if you're not here, to go back and listen to what you've missed. And last week, if you didn't hear the sermon about the who, who we are, please go back and listen to that. You actually could go back a week before that when I talk about neighbor. As I've said a couple of times, that kind of sets a foundation for everything you're going to hear. Today, we're actually going to talk about the why. Why? Why do we exist? Why do we get up in the morning? What's our reason for being? And on the back of your bulletin, we actually have the why for our future, our vision and our mission. And it's, uh, you see a shorthand statement there, and if you want the short and sweet version of our why, you see it right there, to encourage everyone to flourish in Christ. And after that, you see three paragraphs that try to unpack that short and sweet statement for you. And besides the three paragraphs, we're going to be spending the next three Sundays talking more about this central idea of flourishing and how that's the centerpiece of the vision for the future of Grace's mission. So what I'm going to do, and I'm going to invite you to do as you have your bullets, is I'm going to read the first paragraph, because that's going to be our primary focus today. So I'm going to read it to you, and then we're going to talk more about this this morning. It reads, The world in which we live is beautiful yet broken, and many people have been forced to settle or merely survive. We want to see all people thrive the way God intended. We believe God's only son, Jesus Christ, provides a different vision for everyone to experience the gift of abundant, everlasting life in our world today. And again, there's more to that statement that you obviously can read, but today we're just going to focus on that idea of what's this vision that Jesus has? What's this idea of flourishing? And I'm curious, it's a rhetorical question just for you to consider in your mind as I read that to you, as I've mentioned that word a couple of times, that word flourish, when you hear that, what's the first thought that comes into your mind? Just think about that for a second. It's not a word that we use very much. I'll be honest, when we were writing this missional narrative, we almost didn't use it because flourish is a word that initially can seem vague, you know, like maybe suggestive of a flower garden or something like that. I mean, what does it mean to flourish? And it's a verb, as you probably knew. The word to flourish means to grow or develop in a healthy or vigorous way, to prosper. And we settled on this word, as unusual as it is or uncommon, I guess I would say, in our, in our daily conversation, because the more we thought about it, in the history of humanity, there aren't many ideas that could be identified as universal. I mean, because of the mass diversity the massive diversity we encounter in terms of the human experience, there are actually lots of people who are skeptical of any assertion that points to some kind of unchanging or mutually agreed upon idea. But we think flourishing is one such theme. I mean, if you think about it, in the midst of all the diversity of human cultures and worldviews across the broad landscape of our history as humanity, people everywhere innately desire... And seek the best life they can possibly experience. Even when confronted by limitations and challenges, our imagination, our creativity, our dreams are driven by the conviction that our life and our circumstances are not meant to be static. That there is, that there can be more, not just beyond the horizon, but also in what is happening here and now. There is a longing deep within each of us, to flourish for healthy growth and development. I mean, the majority of people attending conferences, indulging in books and reading articles, are people who are seeking out how to thrive. Marketing gurus have long tapped into this universal yearning. I mean, if you put the word flourish into Google, it will actually come up with 56 million results. 56 million Amazon has page after page of books dealing with how to flourish personally, how to flourish in your family, how to flourish in your job, how to flourish in relationships, and so forth. And like you heard, we as a staff and as elders have really become convinced the more that we kind of took in all the information we've gleaned over this last year and a half, as we got into the Word together, we've become convinced that flourishing really reflects what we're to be about as the church. That this is the primary way we're to understand and share the gospel and the kingdom is through this idea of flourishing. And so, like I said, to better capture this vision, we're going to unpack it. And what we're going to do today is we're going to begin with a a basic understanding of how God defines and expresses how we are to thrive together. Now, where we left, le- left off last time, if, and if you weren't here at the very end, is this just broad understanding, this general understanding of our why as the church with a capital C. Not just grace, but the church as a whole. And our broad, general understanding of our why as the church is to share the gospel and to reveal the kingdom. That's why we exist. That's why we get up in the morning. To share the gospel of Jesus Christ and to reveal the kingdom of God that is among us. So our why, as grace comes out of this, flourishing has something to do with that. And so as a way of kind of introducing this, and I've talked about this in sermons before, one of the things we need to realize, which is why flourish teases out something important, is for too long here at Grace, but also in the church in general, we've reduced the breadth and width of this good news, the gospel, the breadth and width of the reign of God to just two things, the forgiveness of our sins and our salvation from death. But as you've heard me say a couple of times, more than once from here, forgiveness is only the beginning of the gospel. The forgiveness of our sins is only the beginning of our gospel. And salvation from death is not the end or even even close to the end of the reach of the kingdom of God. Both of these are true, but this is not it when it comes to what we have to share, what we have to offer. And even if it was, there's a lot left in between these two fixed points. Forgiveness and salvation, right? I mean, what about all the stuff in the middle? What about the life we live between the forgiveness of our sins and our redemption from death? Does the gospel speak to what transpires in that space? Does the kingdom of God have anything to do with all the time and energy we expend here in that middle space between those two fixed points? Of course it does. And that's where we tease out this idea The significance, biblically, of flourishing. What does that look like? What is it about? You have your Bibles open to Psalm number one, and I want you to hear how in the very beginning of this book from the part of the the library of the Bible called the Wisdom Literature, flourishing is envisioned. Psalm number one. Hear it. It reads, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers. But whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who meditates on his law day and night, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in due season and whose leaves do not wither, whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous." But the way of the wicked leads to destruction. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We'll get to Matthew 5. We're actually going to look at two scriptures today in a little bit, but let's just focus here for now. Here we have an evocative image of human flourishing that's centered around a tree that is rooted, planted by streams of water. The key word that you probably picked up here is the word blessed. But the thing is, as we read this, we're probably familiar with this. If you ever turn to the book of Psalms, it's the first one there, so you probably have heard this at some point in your life. That the problem we have is our English translation of the actual word that's being used here. If you weren't with us in the summer, this is part of why I did this in the summer. We had a sermon series talking about getting behind the, the meaning, the actual meaning of some of the English translations of some key Hebrew and Greek words, and this is another example of it. The Hebrew word that's translated here into English as blessed is the Hebrew word ashray. It's literally A-S-H-R-E, ashray. The interesting thing is, even though we translate ashray as blessed, the Hebrew word for blessed is actually Baruch. It's a totally different word, and it's a totally different word that also corresponds with what we typically understand, what we think of when we think of blessing or blessed or being blessed. When we talk of blessing, being blessed, we think of an action through which God bestows favor, gives to the recipient what we might call a divine stamp of approval, right? That God bestows, good job, blessing upon someone, but The thing is, there's this clear distinction in Hebrew between divine favor, that divine stamp of approval, and what's known as a description, just a description of one's state of being, a description of one living centered in the way God designed everything to be. In other words, flourishing. We use, in English, blessed to describe both of those concepts, both those ideas with one word. Interestingly, not just Hebrew, but I actually researched this, pretty much every other language makes a clear distinction between these two ideas. On the one hand, this this idea of God pouring out divine favor based on an action that we do, and then this idea of, of a state of flourishing, this idea of existing in a centered way the way God designed things to be. In every other language, except for English, these are two separate words. Now, I want to be clear as I continue to unpack this. Obviously, human flourishing is only possible because of divine blessing. Human flourishing is only possible at all because of the goodness of God's gracious provision. That being true, there is still a distinction in this particular word, ashray. It's this, not this idea of God responsibly bestowing favor on us. The psalmist here is not making a claim about God's favor at all. Rather, What the psalmist is doing is offering us an inspirational vision for the best way of being in the world, the way that results in human flourishing. What is presented is a powerful, imaginative invitation to be, to exist, to orient one's life in the state of God-centeredness. I tried to think of a couple of ways to help you appreciate this. And again, we talk about how in English we translate, have the one word for the two different ideas, but in Australian, not that I'm very, very familiar with Australian, but I know a little bit, Australian has a, a phrase that encapsulates the difference I'm trying to point to. Um, it, gives, it kind of helps us understand this distinction between bestowed favor from the Lord and just this idea of flourishing. And this Australian phrase is good on you. You ever heard that phrase before? Good on you. Good on you. Now, we don't have a, a phrase like that in English. Good on you captures, it conveys this acknowledgement and congratulation of the good, the healthy, the thriving state of the other person. Good on you. You're in a, a, a centered place, a healthy place, a good place. Good on you. It's not this idea of, oh, something, drop something down, drop something good down on you. It's this on, you're, in this, you're in a centered, healthy space. So, Again, to try to tease this out, we might better translate what this psalm is trying to say, the core of this psalm like this. Flourishing is the one who focuses on and then occupies God's revelation, God's design for how to live in this world. Now, Again, I realize this distinction is very subtle, but it's significant. So let me give you another example. It's more personal to me. Many of you may or may not know that outside of what I do here, I also teach. I teach actually from the school I went to, Fuller Theological Seminary. And I want to use the example of how I construct my class, how I think of my classroom. I structure and organize my class when I teach for my students to excel, for them to flourish. And when I say I want them to excel, that doesn't mean necessarily I want them to make the grade. To excel, when I say that, this idea of flourishing, I structure and organize things so that they will learn, so that they will grow in the context of my class. Because the thing is, Sometimes one can make the grade without necessarily learning and growing. I mean, have you ever had a class where you were able to get the A and you did absolutely nothing? You didn't learn a thing. Honest, right? Didn't learn a thing, didn't grow at all. Or you can have a situation where you passed the class but you didn't learn a thing, didn't grow at all. So when I structure and organize my class for my students to flourish, it's not about necessarily making the grade. I want them to learn. I want them to grow. I intentionally outline and I purposely design my class so that my students don't just merely pass the course but can benefit from what I have to offer them. My desire is for them to excel. I set them up. I set them up to excel, to flourish. I, I put everything I possibly can so that's, that's going to be the outcome. I mean, I actually say this to my students every first class. Really, the only way a student can fail in my class the only way they can fail is to do nothing. Not to engage at all. I mean, just to just completely check out. Or by completely ignoring or rejecting all the instructions and guidelines that I've provided for participating in completing the course. They're just basically ignoring all the things I've done to set them up to flourish. That's the only way they can fail. Either that or just by completely doing nothing. On the other hand, as they operate, as they occupy the contours of what I've set up, what I've laid out, as they pay attention and follow the instructions and guidance I've built into the course, they excel. They learn, they grow. Reading the assigned texts, showing up to class, paying attention in class, participating and interacting with others, doing these kind of things are how a student benefits from the course but it's not like I bestow favor on each of them. I give them extra points for doing this kind of stuff. You with me? It's not even like a tit-for-tat manner, well, if you read the book, then I'll give you an A. One flourishes by doing such things, benefits from the course, because these elements that I'm pointing to are part of the rhythm and flow of how the class was designed. You guys with me on this? Now, I may show favor to a student in different moments, some of them not all the time. I mean, depending on the circumstance, I may give extra, extra time to a student to complete an assignment. I may provide additional resources to them to go a little further in their work, but that is totally different than a student excelling because they are following the rhythm and flow of how the class was designed and laid out. If you're tracking with this at all, this analogy applies to God. All creation is God's classroom. All creation is God's classroom. God cares about who we are as a people, and God desires to develop us into a certain kind of people. God's interests go beyond, well, good, you're forgiven. Your slate's clean, and good, now you've been raised from the dead. God is interested. God is very invested in developing us into a certain kind of people, people who benefit from the life he has given us who excel and become who they were created to be. People created in his image, with his impression placed on them. Our father has ordered and structured creation, our lives, to work in a way that allows us to fulfill the desire he has for us. I've got to share a little something with you, and Betty, you're a part of this story, so be ready for it. Betty is my assistant, as you know, and I write Hearts Up, uh, an article every week that's an introduction to the sermon, and Betty will check that for me before it's published along with Mary, and I sometimes get a gold star if I don't make any mistakes in what I wrote. That doesn't happen very often. But the other thing that both Betty and Mary will do is they will often kind of comment back and say, we don't like the way you worded this, or we think this doesn't make sense, or we don't think people are going to understand this, or, or just will say, like, change this. They never ask, by the way. They just tell me to change it. So this past week, I sent hearts up, and as part of defining this idea of flourishing, I talked about this idea of thriving and excelling, and it's this idea of prospering and being in our prime. And Betty wrote back and said, you got to take this out. I don't like this. you got to take this out. And I think I don't like it because I'm not in my prime anymore, so if that's what flourishing is, that's not going to be good. (laughs) (sighs) Sorry, Betty. Honest. But here's what I want you to understand. Here's what I want you to get. God has ordered and structured creation, our lives, to work in a way that allows us to fulfill the desire that he has for us. And God's desire for us is for us to be in our prime all the time. For us to be in our prime all the time. Interesting thing, I don't know if you even caught it. In Psalm 1, as we just read it, in describing flourishing, the psalmist does not mention forgiveness Or life beyond death, which is not to say that those things are not part of all this or important. They are. But the psalmist doesn't make mention of forgiveness of our sins or life beyond death. No. What does the psalmist talk about? The psalmist talks about fruitfulness, not withering, but thriving in terms of how we experience that space in between those two fixed points. Our life between God's in initiation with us, and the fulfillment of his promises for us. And what does that look like, according to the psalmist? What does it look like to live in that centered space, to thrive? It's rootedness. It's being grounded and aligned with God's design, how he orders and directs his creation, including us. I hope you're starting to, this is starting to break through. Biblically, flourishing is about aligning ourselves with our Father's intentions for us. Not because God demands it. Not because it's the right thing to do and you should just do it. Not because it's a tit for tat, do this and God will pour some kind of divine favor on you. But rather, aligning ourselves with our Father's intention for us is biblical flourishing because that's how we become our fullest and best selves. That's how we become who we were created to be. All flourishing is a gift of God. But human flourishing is an invitation and it's a choice. It's an invitation and it's a choice. So Psalm 1 basically is saying, how would you rather live? Would you rather be a fruit-bearing tree or fleeting chaff that blows away? That's the Old Testament perspective of what this whole thing is about. And when we get to the other side of Psalm 1, on our side of it, the revelation of the Gospels, and we, again, this is, again, with these two fixed points, we often miss, miss this. With this, what we've just unpacked in Psalm 1, part of the revelation of the Gospels is that the epitome of this wisdom, the epitome of this God-centeredness, the epitome of this kind of life, the epitome of the way, the truth, and the life that we've just talked about, the best reflection of God's character and human flourishing in the Father's kingdom, all of that is best witnessed in the person of Jesus Christ. And again, we miss this because we often limit Jesus to being the forgiver of our sins, which he is, and the person who helps us conquer death and live eternally, which he does. But in that space in between, part of the revelation of the gospels is if you want to enter into that God-centeredness, the way, the truth, and the life, the way God designed our lives to be, the epitome of it is the person of Jesus Christ. And that's why biblically, the key to human flourishing is not just being rooted, but being rooted in Christ. It is to commune with Christ. Because the thing is, Jesus as God made flesh reveals humanity at its best. I've preached this before. Jesus as God made flesh reveals humanity at its best. Humanity as it was intended to be this is important. We miss this. Jesus is the reflection of our true humanity. And we miss this because we often say stuff, you know, we make mistakes. We're imperfect. You know, we screw up. And what do we say whenever that happens? Well, I'm only human. Like that's our operative normative state. Well, we're just screw ups. You know, we're just broken people. That's who we are. That is who we are, but that's not who we were meant to be. When we look at Jesus, this is why Jesus is so compelling. Not just that he forgives us. Not just that he conquers death. But when we look at Jesus, we are seeing a reflection. That's the life we were meant to have. That's who we really are. That's why our identity is in Christ. To follow Jesus is to say, that's what full humanity looks like. That's who I can be. And I'm going to follow him because that's the kind of life that I'm supposed to have. That's the kind of person I was meant to become. So another way to think of human flourishing is human flourishing biblically derives from following, from learning from and living like Jesus. And this is beautiful because we can't and we don't have to work this out ourselves. I mean, we don't have to get together and go, okay, the Bible says we're supposed to flourish. What does that look like? How do we do that? God not only tells us, he shows us. He comes down to us and says, this is it. This is who you are. Learning from and living like Jesus, flourishing in Christ has been structured and organized for us in God's classroom. It's been made possible for us too. If we sit there and go, but I'm not Jesus. I can't be Jesus. Yup. You're not Jesus. You can't be Jesus on your own. Neither can I, but God has structured and organized it in a way that we can flourish. We can become who we truly are in Christ. And how has he done this? Through the giving of his Holy Spirit. That's the significance of Pentecost. God has given us his Holy Spirit. He's provided us both with the empowerment and the direction that we can follow Christ, that we can become like Christ, that we can be in Christ. You go through the Old Testament and that's why you see Paul and Peter and John talking all the time about this symmetry, this fusion of our lives in Christ. It's not possible by our own strength, our own brilliance, but it's possible by the Spirit of God who gives us, that strength, who gives us that focus in that direction. To better appreciate this about Jesus, I mean, if this is true, and it is, this is the gospel, then we turn, we ought to turn, if, if, we learn, if we flourish by learning from and living like Jesus, then we ought to turn to the greatest teaching that Jesus has ever given. And you all know it, most people outside the church do, greatest teaching Jesus has ever given is the Sermon on the Mount. And that's where you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 in your Bibles. The Sermon on the Mount actually takes about three chapters, chapter five through chapter seven. And here's something as you're turning to Matthew chapter five that I bet you never caught before. And this is part of why I had us read Psalm number one. If you remember this teaching that takes three chapters, if you read it later today, here's something that will be striking to you now. Is the Sermon on the Mount, is Jesus' expansion of Psalm one this foundational Hebraic teaching that we just looked at briefly. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' expansion of that teaching. Notice as you're getting to Matthew 5, think about the parallels between the two passages separated by generations of believers. Both of them, Psalm 1 and the Sermon on the Mount, contrast two paths, two ways of being in the world. Both of them, Psalm 1 and the Sermon on the Mount, invite their hearers to take a particular path marked by it's fruitfulness. Both, Psalm 1 and the Sermon on the Mount, are providing a picture of the good life, a life that is flourishing. The start of this sermon in Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 5, in fact, bears, bears a series of statements about flourishing. We call these verses the Beatitudes, and I'd like to read them to you right now. So you've got Matthew chapter 5 open, and we're going to be reading from verses 4, or 3, excuse me, through 10. Thanks be to God. We call these opening verses of the sermon here the beatitudes because the word of the word blessed that starts each line and the Latin word for blessed is beatus hence beatitudes. But surprise surprise once again we have a problem, the same problem in Greek that we have in Hebrew. Our English translation of the Greek word that's used here is not helpful. The Greek word that's used here is makarios. And it's better translated not as blessed, but more like we just saw in Hebrew. It's actually parallel to Ashray in Hebrew. It's better translated as thriving, flourishing. So again, if you weren't with me before, Makarios, what Jesus is saying here, this is not a statement of divine action, of God pouring out favor. Do this and get this from God. That's again the wrong use of this word here. Not what it means. And to take it away, because so many of us have heard it this way, I'm going to point to another example of Makarios used in the Gospel of Matthew to again flesh this out for you. You don't have to go there. It's Matthew 16. I'll familiarize you with this. This is the moment in the Gospels when Peter declares Jesus is the Messiah. You guys all remember this when Peter all of a sudden says, You're the Messiah, and Jesus says, Makarios, Peter. Macarios. And we translate that as blessed are you, Peter. In that moment, Jesus is not pronouncing a blessing upon Peter for having had this revelation. He's not saying, excellent answer. God, show him some favor. God, dump down some favor on Peter right now. I mean, just a side note. If that's what Jesus is doing, if Jesus is blessing, pouring out some divine favor on Peter in that moment, then think about this. Then why, like a minute later, did Peter go so wrong so fast? You remember this, right? That all of a sudden, Peter all of a sudden like turns around and Jesus goes from saying, Makarios, Peter, to get behind me, Satan. What did the blessing not take? What, you know, God poured out the favor and it just didn't, it just like rolled off Peter's back? No, what's happening here, like we've been talking about, is Jesus proclaims Peter is Makarios. He is flourishing because he's able to see Jesus is the Messiah. He's not getting favor from God for a good answer, Peter thrives because he's been the recipient of God's revelation about Jesus. He's sitting in that God-centeredness. He gets it. And that's why, very next second, when Peter steps out of God-centeredness, when he steps out of God's direction, when he's out of the Lord's will and tries to take control, right, and tries to create his own order in reality, you're not going to die, you're not going to be crucified, Peter stops thriving. And Jesus points that out. You don't have in mind the things of God. You have in mind the things of man. Sometimes people take the Beatitudes here as pronouncements of a future promise. And you see that actually in the English translation as well. And that's not reflected in the Greek. You know, theirs will be. Theirs will be. So it's kind of, okay, how do we deal with this? Because they're so weird. So, okay, you'll, you will experience this, but you will be blessed one day. You will flourish one day. But again, this is not the nuance of Makarios. Makarios is not a pronouncement of a future promise either, flourishing later. The picture in the whole of the sermon, chapters 5 through 7, that Jesus paints on the Sermon on the Mount that starts with the Beatitudes is the image of a state of of the true God-centered life, a life that is thriving now. Read through the rest of the sermon and you do not see future tense language. Jesus doesn't say future tense. Jesus doesn't say all this will be true after the cross. All this... After the resurrection, this is what flourishing is going to look like. No, Jesus unveils in this sermon what it means to flourish now. Now, you might say to yourself, well, well then if that's the case, if Jesus kind of lays out the roadmap for flourishing now, then what's the point of the cross and the resurrection? If it doesn't happen after, if it's already there, then why the cross? Why the resurrection? And here's why. Because while we can flourish now, what Jesus does on the cross clears the way. What Jesus does on the cross clears the way because it removes the biggest obstacle to us living in that place of God-centeredness. We are forgiven. He extends forgiveness, God's forgiveness. So he clears the way for us. And then through the resurrection, Jesus reveals the truth. There are so many lies we tell ourselves. There are so many lies out there of why we're only human, why we can't flourish. And the resurrection reveals the truth that the victorious love of God in the risen Christ is stronger than death, stronger than the lies we tell ourselves. And then Pentecost gives us the life, and Jesus points us, promises us Pentecost. We are given, as we talked about before, this eternal power of the Spirit to live the life we were meant for. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, the cross, the resurrection, and Pentecost. I I know I'm making a lot of this today, but these distinctions are absolutely essential to hear the Beatitudes correctly, to understand what human flourishing biblically looks like. Because what Jesus is presenting here, and many of you have been taught this all your lives, is not to present a list of entrance requirements. It's not a list of moral attributes that must be obtained like tokens in order to be blessed rather than cursed. And these are more, There's so much more than assurances of what one day will be true for us. What Jesus is observing and directing our attention towards is the kind of life we can occupy, the life God desires for us, the life that God has designed for us for us to have Jesus is inviting humanity as a whole not into a future state after we die but a present reality in which we can begin to grow in which we can begin to mature and prosper into who we were created to be today and the thing about the Sermon on the Mount is this these this, these three chapters represent teachings you can check go through Matthew Mark Luke and John Teachings that Jesus repeatedly circles back to over and over again. But it's here that Jesus develops in depth what it looks like to thrive in the kingdom of God, to flourish as the Lord intended. Now, if you've been tracking with me, there's probably the obvious question that you're thinking that I can actually, can I actually say out loud, that we're all thinking the minute I read the Beatitudes. How does po- being poor in spirit, how does mourning or being persecuted How's that flourishing? How's that thriving? I mean, if, if this is what Jesus' picture of flourishing looks like, if it's described as being poverty of spirit, mourning, hungry, thirsty, lowly, not receiving justice, I mean, what gives? Those sound more like anti-flourishing descriptions to me. The first thing to notice is that Jesus is keeping it real. And what I mean by that is Jesus is acknowledging how things actually are. Not how they're supposed to be, not how they will be, but how they actually are. God desires us to flourish. This is most certainly true. God has designed his creation. He set us up to thrive. We live in a beautiful world, but a broken one. A universe that's been cracked by our rejection and rebellion against God's purposeness and will for our lives. This, our sin, what we call our sin, has injected suffering and pain, loss and chaos into our earthly existence. And yet, and this is the point, Jesus is observing, inviting us to see we can flourish in the midst of our brokenness. Now we need to be careful here. Again, these are not commandments or a list of moral standards. It's not thou shalt be poor in spirit. It's not thou shalt be persecuted or flourishing are the poor in spirit because they're poor in spirit or flourishing are the persecuted because they're persecuted. Being poor in spirit, being persecuted is not the goal. It's not how God designed our lives to be. God designed our life to be as Jesus will tell us elsewhere in the gospel of John to have life to the full, to have abundant life. Part of the problem again here in this translation of such an important text is we often see that connecting word between the two phrases, you know, flourishing is the one, and then it says for. The word for is probably not the best translation. It's a kind. There's a kind of clause here in Greek that ultimately is telling us that what follows hinges on what was first. So instead of reading the word for flourishing is the one for da 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 da, da it should be flourishing is the one because. Being poor in spirit, in other words, isn't what it means to flourish. Flourishing are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Despite appearances, despite experiencing the brokenness of this world, those who feel lowly, those who are struggling spiritually are still possessors of the promise of the gospel. They are still participants who can occupy the truth of the kingdom of God. This is huge. This is a radical inversion of our understanding of flourishing, the world's understanding of flourishing, right? This is, if we're honest, this is the opposite of how we would evaluate things. For us, apart from God, outside of Christ's teaching, we would say this. Flourishing is when you have a lot of kids. Thriving are those who have tons of money. Excelling are the ones who have perfect physical health. Flourishing are the ones who always get justice. And yet Jesus describes and holds up examples of anti-flourishing as pointing to the reality that in the midst of pain and suffering, we can thrive. That is why the second part of each statement is so essential. Let's just take one example. Flourishing are those whose lives are marked by hunger and thirst for righteousness, Jesus says. They're hungry and thirsting for God to set the world to right. This is not a good state to be in, in right? Right? But to be in this state is a God-centered place because it's to be dissatisfied with an awareness of how not right the world is. It's to be in a place of longing for God to act. And the way Jesus describes it, it is precisely those who, who occupy, who are centered in this space that flourish because their hunger and thirst for righteousness presses them into the heart of God's intent and design for all creation. It's not that God pours out blessing on them. They're pressing in to what God desires, what God wants, what God set us up for. Such people are occupying, they're living into our Father's groove, if you will, for how the world ought to be, how the world is moving. And therefore, Jesus says, not only will they be satisfied in that hunger and thirst, this hunger and thirst will continue to root and redirect their hearts and hopes in terms of what matters now, what endures and what is everlasting. My friends, there's a deep mystery at work here. Don't miss it. Biblically flourishing before the reality of the tragic, the brokenness of this world of our lot li- and of our lives, isn't this disposition to grin it and bear it, or keep calm and carry on? No, Jesus is calling his followers to adopt a certain posture to embrace a particular way of life. The Beatitudes are not demands to acquire these virtues. They are a verbal portrait of the good into which we are drawn and by which our lives and our world can be transformed. Here's something that I wonder if you ever noticed. This description of thriving in the midst of suffering, this description of thriving in the midst of pain in life, Is something Jesus not only teaches us, but it's something that Jesus experiences and models for us. Think about it. Jesus was poor in spirit. Jesus mourned and grieved. Jesus hungered and thirsted for God's kingdom to be manifest. Jesus showed mercy and brought peace. Jesus faced unjust suffering and persecution, and yet in the midst of such pain, such wrongs and injustice, Jesus thrived. He did not succumb to temptation. Rejection, betrayal, abuse did not limit his flourishing. Even death itself could not keep him down. And beloved, if you've heard nothing else this morning, hear this. If we follow Jesus, the same can be true for us. We too. In the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of the injustices of this life, the tragic of this life, we too can thrive. We can become in Christ all we were created to be. But you say, but I'm not Jesus. You're not. But by the power of the spirit of the living God that is in you, you are becoming like Christ. One of my favorite verses, I repeat it a lot, We have been crucified in Christ. It is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. This life we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God who gave his life for ours. His life is our life. His life is becoming our life. What Jesus declares here What the Bible defines as biblical flourishing is contrary to our understanding of flourishing. For us, thriving, living the good life, is having everything to make my life convenient, comfortable, and easy. But you're seeing it. Biblical flourishing is not a roadmap to get rich quick. You can thrive whether you have a lot of money or whether you don't have much at all. Excelling in the kingdom of God doesn't mean one has to be happy, clappy all the time. And that's been a mistake in the church. We literally are like, you know what? If we're in Jesus, if we're in Christ, we have to be happy, clappy all the time and you need to show up and you gotta have the joy, 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 joy down in your heart. And you know what? It's like we're talking ourselves into it. And it's all good until all of a sudden life throws you a curve, something happens, and the church is the last place you want to be. And that's wrong. Why is that? Because you're not happy, clappy anymore. And therefore, there's something wrong with you because you're supposed to be happy, clappy all the time. You're supposed to have the joy, 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 joy down in your heart. And you don't. And so, therefore, God must not be pouring out favor on you. And that's not how it works. That's not life how it is. You can flourish, Jesus declares. The Bible declares. You can flourish even when you mourn. You can thrive even when you experience loss. But we flourish and we thrive by remaining rooted in Christ and abiding in the eternal life, the full and abundant life that Jesus has constructed and designed for us, all of us, now, through the work of the cross and the resurrection, through the giving of his Holy Spirit. The Lord's intent and design for our lives is not for us to fade away, but to prosper. Not to succumb to death, but to be resurrected from it. God's design, what Jesus has done on the cross and the resurrection, the gift of Pentecost, it doesn't always change our circumstances, people. But it can and it does always infiltrate them. Even as we are works in progress, even as the yeast of the kingdom of God is still working through the dough of our lives, we can flourish, we can learn, we can grow, we can mature, we can be li- begin to live into eternity now. Flourishing in God's kingdom comes where comes as we are, where we are. Flourishing in God's kingdom comes. As we are where we are, it is not based on where we wish we were or who we wish we were. I'm going to say that one more time because this is, this is it. Biblical flourishing in God's kingdom comes as we are where we are. It is not based on where we wish we were or who we wish we were. This is what drives the entire story of the Bible. This is what's at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what the inauguration of the kingdom of God is about. This idea, this beautiful, beautiful idea of flourishing. Biblical flourishing is being rooted in Christ. It's aligning ourselves with God's growth plan for our lives. It's not denying, but facing and confronting the pain and suffering inside of us and all around us. And we do that by pressing into the promise of his presence. By leaning into the experience of his unconditional love. And by living day after day after day after day, living out of the hope of his amazing and limitless grace. Amen.